0: Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst, reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has nine years of law enforcement analysis experience with Shreveport PD in Louisiana. He also had a 20-year career with the U.S. Air Force. He studied at Michigan State, Penn State, Ohio State. He must be a Big Ten guy. Please welcome John Fox. John, how are we doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: All right. So, as I mentioned, you got some Big Ten schools on there. So, who do you root for?
1: Well, I usually root for Ohio State because that's where I grew up, and most Mm of my friends and family are Buckeye folks. And, you know, so that's who we follow uh, normally. But I also uh, would be a mess if I didn't say I follow LSU also. So, (laughs) (laughs) it's hard not to when you live here in Louisiana.
0: Yeah, no, I I get it. So, all right, very good. So we'll get into a little bit of that because I do want to, I do at least want to talk a little bit about Michigan State later, because that's where you earned the crime analysis degree. And so, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So let's first start with how you discovered the law enforcement analysis profession.
1: Well, 18, I was preparing to retire from the military. And when you prepare to retire, at least at that time, they would put you through a bunch of transition classes. And the transition classes I went to, one of them talked about business, one of them talked about going back to school, and then finally the last one talked about seeking a job or finding a new career. And during those courses, The thing that I really took away was the fact that the folks that were most successful in their transition took the skills that they gained in the military and maybe skills that they picked up along the way from hobbies or uh, previous careers to the military or academics, something like that. And they took those skills and applied it to a career. So I knew we were going to stay here in Shreveport. I met my wife in this area when I was Stationed at Barksdale Air Force Base in two thousand and one, and we she wanted to stay here. Her family is from here, Her mother was here, so we you know that's so I was tied to the area and then I started to look around with that idea that I mentioned about well what am I gonna do and it seemed like I was gonna look to get a job, but the jobs that I best translated into were either law enforcement or some type of career in a DOD civilian world. And I knew that I wanted a clean break from the military at that point. So Mm -hmm. I looked to law enforcement. Um, At first, I I didn't know anything about crime analysis. So I was looking at becoming either a a jailer or an officer. And and when I say jailer, like uh, up in Northern Louisiana, the state has a, a a penitentiary that's not too far away from here, a reasonable distance to drive to for work. And and all of the parishes have uh, like a parish jail or parish uh, prison, if you will, Mm. opportunities there for somebody transitioning into law enforcement. Uh, And then of course there were several departments at the time that were trying to hire new people as well. So, but as I was looking through that search and I was looking at applying to Shreveport, I was looking at their webpage and there was a position, an open position for a crime analyst. And I read the job description and it, it, it almost matched perfectly the skills that I already had. And I thought, well, should I do this or should I be an officer? But uh, it, after kind of discussing the situation with my family and thinking about different issues that I had mm-hmm. and... The life I'd lived in the military, I decided I would go with crime analysis. So, right. and so that's that was pretty much it. Right. But it's now that I know a lot more about it, and now that I've been doing it for a while, I mean, it's it's a good career field to
0: become. So. I, thought you, I thought you were gonna say, I regret it.
1: <laughs> I no, 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 it. no, no. The the only thing that uh, that's I, I guess it would be nice at my department we don't have there aren't a whole lot of positions you know there's only one mm-hmm. position right now yeah. but so yeah. it's not like you can bounce between different uh, facets of crime analysis like maybe you would in a bigger a bigger place like Dallas or um, Houston New Orleans so that's maybe the only downside to it.
0: But uh, I know when we talked in the prep call, you mentioned you're going to be limited in terms of what you can talk about in terms of your military career. But I am curious because you said that the the analyst job fit some of the skill sets that you already had. So I'm curious to know what did you learn or what skills did you have in the military that fit nicely into the analyst role?
1: Well, I I guess, first of all, in the Air Force, I was trained as an intelligence officer and an information operations planner, so In both of those things, there's a a lot of basic stuff that you do that translates well to this type of work. So, for instance, it wasn't unusual for somebody to come to me with a requirement for some type of information or analytical product. So I would, when I was assigned to flying units and flying wings... They might ask me a question and I'd have to go research do a bunch of research, assemble assemble some type of presentation, maybe assemble data files in a meaningful way and communicate that to them to support their operational planning. You know, so that was one aspect that was useful. In addition to that, as a as a information operations planner and a more senior intel officer, I did a lot of writing writing operations orders and policy documents and guidelines for folks to follow. And again, all of that stuff kind of translates here. Uh, The job that I have at at Shreveport, I've had to write several different pieces that ended up going to the city council. Mm -hmm. I've had to prep, prepare graphics and presentations, both geographic type information and statistical that... Again, those were things that I would have to do, basic things I would have to do in the military that, you know, again, that translated well into this
0: you know, career field. Yeah. Now, now, when you were the information operations planner, was it strictly for, for war or was there a different purpose for what you were planning?
1: The work that I did in that, I was attached to an air operations center and mm-hmm. and in that, I was deployed to the Middle East during the the conflict, mm. so over there. So I supported most of the work that I did directly impacted things that were going on over in the war zone when it came to that um, type of planning.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess don't take this the wrong way, but you almost seem overqualified for the analyst role. Right, looking through some of the well, things you accomplished in the Air Force about managing 20 different folks, having a pretty big budget, developing strategies. You talked about the, the planning aspect of it.
1: Well, I, I think that's one of the things though, when you look to get a job after your first career, sometimes you look for less stress. <laughs> and I don't know. Maybe I, I find this type of work to be a little less stressful than the mm. the previous work that I had. The other thing is you kind of have to look to where you're at. So I'm um, geographically tied to this location, sure. And, and the skill set that I had it would be useful in a bigger city, but that's not where we're at. So
0: um, yeah, yeah. So and then I guess I'm I'm a more more curious just regarding your Air Force career, because, you know, most, most people go to the military. They do their, their four years, they do their, their time and then leave. In terms of your case, you obviously stayed for a 20 year career. What drew you to that conclusion that you wanted to continue to go on for 20 years? Cause it's not, it does sound like it got to the point where like, okay, this is 20 years is too much. I've I'm, I'm tired of the military. I want to go do something else.
1: Yeah, well. I guess the first thing is with the military, you, in my case, I grew up around people that were in the military, and they looked at that as an opportunity, and they kind of groomed me to go into that to an extent, Mm -hmm. and then once I got into it, I liked liked the opportunity to be overseas, because a lot of my time, I was in overseas areas or getting deployed to overseas areas, so I got to travel and see foreign cultures and stuff like that but at a point you kind of get burned out and and and, and kind of get to a point where it's time to go and i think that was pretty much the way that most military people are it just comes at different points in their career so hmm. all
0: right so then when you get to Shreveport is this is this a brand new position? Are you their first analyst or were you replacing somebody?
1: No, I replaced somebody, but mm-hmm. it was a weird situation. The person that I replaced He had a medical issue that came up that forced, was an unexpected medical thing that forced him to retire. And Mm -hmm. there was a a void for a period of time at Shreveport where they didn't have an analyst and they were trying to use officers to fill the position. So after a period of time, they figured out that wasn't working for them. So then they, that was about the time that I, saw this position listed and, you know, so I moved into it. So it was kind of strange in that there was stuff already set up, but there was really no continuity Mm -hmm. as to what you were doing. So in some ways I was creating processes. I was tweaking processes that existed, but there was no way to like ask the person, why did you do this or or, why do we do these things? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it, it was almost like being creating something from new, from the beginning.
0: So I got you. I see. And so then you're walking in for the first time, and you're brand new to the field. You you're in a quasi semi new position, as you just described. What are you asked to do when you're you're first starting? What are you what are your goals? Hey.
1: Well, I guess for me, I was just trying to figure out how everything worked. And and along those lines, the chief had things that he wanted me to produce. So the big thing that the department was doing at the time that they needed my help with was CompStat. So I essentially started keeping track of the crimes and generating reports and mapping the crimes. And. Making sure their maps were updated, that kind of stuff. So, you know, but then for me, I started doing this work and thought, well, I, I need to understand more about crime and criminal justice and such. And that's part of the reason that uh, I started getting more educated, you know, not just in degrees, but I spent a lot of time reading stuff from the problem oriented policing. Center their, mm. their 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 publications and then the I started I, I joined the IAC and started hitting hitting the webinars as much as I could reading the papers and such so I could figure out are we doing what what was being done in our department? did that make sense? Does it fit what's the norm now in crime analysis? Can I do things better? you know is there anything I can do better so and slowly I think I've made improvements here. I know there's still a long way to go. I would like more automation, but uh, I guess that comes with more computer skills.
0: <laughs> the position is fairly new uh, in the grand scheme of things, right? And, but it is still interesting to me to talk to folks that you You started less than 10 years ago, and it's just like, okay, here's a computer, go. <laughs> Like, if you need training, we'll send you to training. Other than that, just kind of figure it out on your own and let me let us know if we can help.
1: Yeah, and, and that's, that's pretty much it. So at least that was kind of the model that I dropped into. Now, my department over the years has been good enough to allow me to go to the IACA conference a couple of times. Uh, And that's been helpful. And then uh, with membership and IECA, of course you have access to the training and I've taken a bunch of the, the webinars and stuff through them that made me smarter on how to do things so yeah.
0: but now, uh, now was there a particular training or maybe there was a couple of them that really you think or really helped you out in terms of figuring out the job
1: well it sorry if i pause here for a minute i'm looking for a book that is on my shelf or at least it used to be it was about the, the crime analysis what was it 60 steps you know oh, the John. The,
0: yep, the John Eck book, 60, 60 steps. Yeah, you know. that
1: it. The courses were good to teach knowledge and some of the softwares that I was mm-hmm. struggling with a little bit. But as far as like understanding what a crime analyst needed to do and kind of what uh, the the daily grind might be or what it maybe should be, that was the key book for me. Yeah. Because you um, could go through and read it. You could tab a page and come back to it when you needed to for, you know, for reference.
0: Oh, well, I got the book just to, just for the listeners just to shore it up there. It's, it's Crime Analysis for Problem Solvers in 60 Steps. And it's with uh, Ronald Clark and John Eck. And and I I, I seem to always remember John Eck. Well, John Eck was my professor at Cincinnati when I was there, but I always forget Ron Clark's name in in that. So if Ron ever sees me, he's probably going to give me a hard time because I always forget to include him in referencing that, that book and the Sarah model and all of that those two accomplished
1: yeah yeah and, and that uh, it was those it was that particular book that led me to the problem-oriented policing uh, center and the guides that was one thing that the analyst who was here before me he had left behind a bunch of those kind of books those prop the little pop books mm-hmm. and i just would take those read them every night <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, I, I cut you off there. Was there another training that you were about to say?
1: Well, the other the other thing and, and it's not so much a training, but it was a book that that I pulled from the shelf that I read also that was a big help was crime analysis from first report to final arrest. Mm-hmm. And that one was again kind of yeah, the how to manual of what to do for me. So
0: Yeah. Interesting. So you start off, you're doing some maps, you're you're supporting Comstat. You come to the conclusion that I you need to become a better student of prime analysis and you educate yourself there. So then what were the, some of the things you you implemented from there? Once you got some of this education, how did you improve either the position or maybe even ComStat?
1: Well, one of the, one of the things that I started to do was to update a lot of my maps. Um, Mm -hmm. I got some training in GIS and, and there was some other GIS books that were here that I think it was like crime mapping or something like that. It was some some course book that must have been left here. And I read that and I, I improved what I was doing from the mapping standpoint and trying to automate more of it as much as I could through the creation of scripts that I would run instead of having to go through and do a whole bunch of steps, individual actions and in software But then as far as things to the officers, one of the things that I implemented was at the time they were only doing like crime update reports twice a week. And I said, well, what if I automate this report stuff and then I give you a way that you can get an update every day. Mm -hmm. And then I saw I implemented a process where every day I I cleaned up data and put it into uh, an access database. Mm-hmm. Which then there were automated reports that they could go into and click a button and open up the reports for their area and look at, and you know, and all of that I put in place and was running fairly well up through COVID. And <laughs> and COVID happened.
0: <laughs> Are you self taught in Microsoft Access?
1: IACA and self taught, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and along with what do you call it? YouTube, yeah. You know, the YouTube is amazing, too. I guess that's something I should have mentioned as far as training, because I think a lot of times you might not think of that as a go-to source. But yeah. pretty much anything you want to do, you can you can Google and YouTube and or search it in YouTube and find a video or five that will mm-hmm. explain it, and at least one of them, you'll get it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you all still running Comstat there? Yes, we, we still do that. It,
1: it used to be a an two-week program. Every two weeks they would get together and have a meeting, but now it's, it pretty much is once a week that we're, we're doing that. But that started once we were part of something called the Public Safety partnership. So in 21, our department joined the public safety partnership, and with that came reporting requirements that were similar to CompStat. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing that was different, though, is instead of working internal with the members of our the members of my department now I'm doing reports that are going to all of the law enforcement partners that we interact with in Shreveport so that was a new experience
0: so that's a local program then.
1: Well, the the public safety partnership is actually a national program and it's mm-hmm. run by I want to say the Department of Justice is it the Bureau of Justice Support does that sound right? Yeah.
0: Justice statistics?
1: No, it's not it's not a statistics thing. It's it's like a training, it's the okay. the it's more of a training program, but it's but it's it's a national program your agency can become part of, the unfortunate part though, is that they're looking, you, you, one of the qualifying criteria is to be, have a high amount of violent crime. Unfortunately, for a while, we kind of had that in here in the city, so.
0: So then you're having to report once a week to to the Bureau for this program, so you all moved your ComStat from bi-weekly to weekly. Correct. Um, and I, I, it's interesting I, the the comstat process cuz it certainly has evolved over the years and i think i think it was eric pisa i'm going to give eric pisa credit i think he he when he was on my show he said comstat was when it was developed it was it was really useful for a lot of different decision makers cuz they didn't have access to the data right they would come to the comstat and people would learn it was just the data wasn't readily available well now today i mean the data is readily available you're not waiting to the comstat meeting to make a decision on what to what you're doing and and so the kind of the 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 main purpose of CompStat, at least from the beginning, has kind of lost its luster. Do you have a, a, a similar or different take from that?
1: Well, sometimes it feels like we're doing statistics to do statistics. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the biggest thing, though, that, that comes out of CompStat is the fact that you have all of these different senior officers in the department, at least this is how we do it, Come together at one place at one time for a set set period of time every week to talk about what their problems are in their particular area in our our city we have it divided up into four operational areas that and a senior officer is assigned to us in charge of that area, but these these officers get together with the chief and some of the special units to talk about their, their issues and problems. And I think to me, that's probably the greatest value of it. Mm-hmm the numbers, especially during COVID sometimes, uh, I wasn't super comfortable that the output that I was giving was really indicative of what was happening. And that was in our department, we do paper reports and then those reports are are entered into our records management system. While there was a lag, mm. there, there was already a lag in doing that. But when COVID came around, unfortunately, the the people that entered reports, they were in a fairly confined space, so every time there was a wave of sickness, there was a, at least a few of those people were going to be out for a period of time. So,
0: what's your lag now? Well,
1: it's it, it's it depends on the crime type, but mm-hmm. most of the major crimes get into the system within 2 to 3 days now, which is still not perfect, you know, for analysis, but, and that's part of the reason I I can't remember if we talked about the the different types of analysis that I normally do as the loan analyst, but, you know, that's primarily why I concentrate more on administrative stuff than tactical, because they're just, the the data just doesn't come in a timely manner, so.
0: Hmm. That is interesting. So do you, for your Comstat, do you normally what day do you normally have your Comstat and do you usually like cut it off so you you have it on Wednesdays, but it's you're studying data data as of the end of Sunday or something like that?
1: Yeah, it, it's pretty much like you described. I, mm-hmm. I set the period two week periods running from Sunday to Saturday and then it's 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 a comparison of the two weeks. You know the the previous two weeks to the current two weeks, but but then the meeting, the physical meeting where folks are getting together, isn't held until either Wednesday or Thursday, depending upon which which meeting we're talking about. If it's the if it's mm-hmm. the internal one, it's on Thursdays, and if it's the the external one, then it's on on Wednesdays. So. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Huh. And it looks like you, just my quick Google search here, you got about 500 officers there.
1: Yeah, that's what's on the books, but it, it, it's like, it, at least Louisiana has been having issues with mm-hmm. keeping enough officers on the staff. So, like, our department is, we, we have almost 500 positions, but I think there's about 100 or 100 plus that are unoccupied. Um mm-hmm. Because, again, after the whole COVID business, it just kind of changed the the landscape of uh, the department, you know, and reduced the personnel drastically.
0: Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Oh, even at, once you get up to full strength at 600, I mean, that's still, man, that's still a lot of reports being written. And I'm just going on in terms of just the data entry folks. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of work for them all to be doing with trying to keep up with 500 officers.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and COVID had greatly reduced the volume of reports that that were written. But post pandemic, we're starting to come back to normal levels, and it's it, it it's a struggle some days to keep
0: up. So yeah, but hmm. yeah, I didn't yeah. So it's you know that's not obviously one of the things you don't like to see come back right on post COVID. Like that's one of the things that I yeah. Am...
1: Hopefully that doesn't happen again, and hopefully we don't have any more pandemics while I'm a uh, part of the department. So
0: mm-hmm. yeah, so. Yeah, I, there was some, somebody asked something, uh, I forget what it was, exactly how it was put, but when your grandchildren ask you about the pandemic, we, you know, what's the worst thing that you, you could tell them? And I was thinking, which one? Like if we had more than one pandemic, when you're talking to your grandchildren, <laughs> it's like, which one? That would be the worst, because I can't imagine going through that, even something similar again. So, Yeah. Hi, my name is Nick Luton. So I'm a crime analyst and I'm here to tell you that nobody deserves to be a victim, but lock your doors and put your stuff where people can't see it. Thank you. Hi, this is Adrian Galbrick. Have you ever received an email on a giant listserv and started to hit reply all instead of just reply? If so, you're not the only one and just always pause and double check before you hit send. Well, let's get to your analyst badge story. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is a career defining case or project that an analyst works. And for you, it's 2018 and you're dealing with a sex offense that really turns into something a little bit more.
1: Yeah. I took the time last night to go back after talking with you to look at what I had done. And first of all, I'm going to correct the dates a little bit. So the event happened in 17. Okay. So I, I had been an analyst for a couple of years by that point. And after going through all the training and the different guides and stuff, I knew that one of the things that I needed to do was to look at different categories of crime and look for concentrations and, and, and trying to figure out what was causing the problem. So while I was doing that, looking at sex offense issues one day, I noticed a concentration. And then as part of my process, uh, I would go through and open each one of the reports and read each report to see, well, is it, 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 it is this being caused by a, a single offender? Do we have something like that going on? Or is it just kind of a, a place-based kind of thing? But when I was reviewing the report, I noticed that it sounded a lot like something I'd heard before or read mm. before. And one, one of the other tasks, that I had, uh, and, and I'm not sure if it really is the best task for the crime analyst, but it was one of the jobs I had was to, to do the UCR reporting numbers to the state.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And as I went through that that reporting for the state, I would have to review each homicide every month and provide certain bits and pieces of information uh, for the UCR report. And I remember encountering a, a report where some remains were found that we couldn't identify, and it was in a particular house in a particular uh, location. And as I was reviewing the report that I mentioned before, I was like, "Where does this?" I was reading the details, and and one of the things that it talked about was a potential homicide that occurred. Well, long story short, I was able to put both incidents on a map, kind of step through the timelines in each one, and lo and behold, the two were uh, related. And as a result, that went to, I forwarded that to the investigator assigned, both investigators, because there were two separate investigations. And it it turned out that the information that I noted it put the investigator on a path that allowed both cases to be closed and, and it identified at that point with remains that were unidentified. So it was, you know, for me, that was like the first big, big event that I'd been a uh, part of as a law enforcement analyst, because you go through this crime stats stuff and, mm-hmm. and, and. And, and you do your daily grind, and you don't necessarily see uh, a big result. But in this case, this situation, I— You got to win. Yeah, I got a win, and the department got a win because we closed two—actually ended up closing three cases because uh, I was looking at the letter that was—I uh, ended up getting a letter of accommodation from the, the chief of police for the stuff that I did as part of it. And you know, but it ended up closing three cases and uh, both a what, what violent offender off the streets.
0: What was the other case?
1: There was a missing person report because oh. the 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 unidentified remains were actually somebody that had been reported missing six months or so prior to the mm-hmm. discovery of the remains.
0: Hmm. So, what exactly are you reading out of this sex offense report that? made you think of that of that body.
1: I I guess the fact that the 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 person claimed to have been present at a homicide and then she kind of described where it happened and I started looking at the address and and then compared it to you know uh, compared it to the address for the sex offense.
2: Hmm
0: and she was and she was a victim of the sex offense she
1: was she was a victim of a couple of different uh, offenses
0: Hmm. now was the victim sexually assaulted as well yeah
1: i i don't know the details of that
0: and Mm -hmm. uh, i can't speculate i don't want yeah i don't want to speculate there but no i think because
1: because i I guess that's the one thing in this as an analyst i don't normally do investigative analysis work Mm -hmm. and so uh, I was just doing my normal stuff, looking for patterns, and I identified Mm -hmm. this, and I sent it to the investigator, and they took over from there. But -hmm. it was just that little, So, and I guess that for me, that's probably the biggest thing that I take away from it. You might go through your day thinking, well, what I do, some days you might think, well, what I do just doesn't matter. But on that particular day, the the basic grind resulted in, in a big win, so...
2: Yeah, um, no.
0: Well, it, it is really important for analysts, I think, to read reports, right? But usually, some of these departments they're so large, you you don't have time to read every single report in a day. Well, right? and it's yeah, it's, and, it's a lot.
1: Yeah, and I I don't really have that either. That lecture is a you know as a the single analyst in the department, but
2: mm-hmm.
1: but when I get a concentration. I will take the time to read that because you're not talking about reading a thousand reports. You might be dealing with 15, even 50 becomes reasonable depending upon the project you're, you're working on, you know, so.
0: Yeah. In this case, though, you were able to connect these cases because of just your administrative work that you did for was it UCR or Divers I can't remember which, which one Well it
1: was it was it was UCR at the time
0: yeah. yeah so I mean there is definitely something to be said about y- having that broad access to to the data that you're reviewing the, all the homicides and that go to the state and have aware of some of the details Yes <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's, I'm actually curious because you are my first analyst from Louisiana on the show. What crime trends that you see there in Shreveport and maybe even Louisiana?
1: Well, I guess the the first thing I would say is that, you know, Louisiana has a a, a reputation for being a fun place to be, but we also have some issues with criminal behavior and it's at least where I'm at in Shreveport uh, the crime sometimes passes right through town we we live here on the uh, intersection of two interstates and uh, you know that connect Dallas and and Atlanta and then the north south connects us to uh, to South Louisiana down to I10 when sometimes people pass through here and some crime comes to town, but, and we also have folks from here, like I mentioned, going over to the Dallas area. It is not unusual to have folks from here, you know, end up being part of criminal problems other places. So,
0: yeah. So, so some of the stuff that's being trafficked to drugs, guns,
1: yeah, they they certainly have drug activity that comes and goes through here. And then, you know, firearms have, have been a problem more so over the last few years and and of course gun crime I think most places in the, across the US during covid saw some spike in gun crime and Louisiana wasn't left out of that and Shreveport itself had unfortunately some pretty high counts of homicide in the last couple
0: of years so you'd mentioned that Shreveport was part of that program and they were had Higher than average violence and other crimes. So, so why do you think Shreveport is above average in in terms of crime?
1: Well, I guess one of the things when you you look at Shreveport as a whole, you have a city where it 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 used to be. 30 or 40 years ago, a manufacturing hub, and there used to be a lot of, a lot of kind of that heavy make things industry, manufacturing industry. Mm-hmm. But over the years, a lot of that has dried up and gone away. And so now you have people that live here in a city that's, we have about 180,000 people, you know, with not as much opportunity to find good paying jobs, that's some of it. And then we also have, I guess, just a culture that everybody here has a gun, you know, mm. and, and and that doesn't mean that you're going to use the gun in a bad way. But I mean, it's mm-hmm. just the availability of firearms here is probably mm-hmm. higher than it might be in other some other places. So, well,
0: it raises I, it raises fear. And when people are scared, they not always think clearly. Yeah. Right. So they might may do stuff that they normally wouldn't do if they there was no guns present.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I think all of those have a little bit to contribute to the to the problem. But uh, I I don't know that any one any one issue, though, is the key to the whole thing. So
0: you mentioned in the prep call that you have one hundred and eighty thousand people. but Then there's did you say there was forty thousand reports in a year?
1: Yeah, that was prior to COVID. We were mm-hmm. averaging about uh, forty thousand reports. The last couple of years, we've had closer to twenty five, but mm-hmm. this year we seem like we're on a an upward trend. Huh.
0: So yeah, and that that got me thinking too, because is is those reports indicative that you actually there's there's reporting the crime because you it's indicative of like that's that's how much crime you actually have but it also could be a situation where you have those reports to where because people are comfortable coming to the police when certain issues arise so they're going to make if you're comfortable with police you may go and report a a low-level crime for instance a, a theft for instance that may be other places that you know what that's not that i'm not even going to bother i don't even want to get the police involved. So, it's it's interesting it's interesting because you could see that high report rate as indicative of crime, but it also may be that something that you have a a city that is okay with coming to the police when they have a problem.
1: Yeah, and and, and I think that's one of the the things the uh, the balance that the, the officers here have to work through is mm-hmm. you you always want Less crime, but then you you don't want the the people in the community out there taking care of crime themselves <laughs> and and sometimes that itself can lead to violent encounters,
0: oh yeah, so, especially well back to your point about everybody carrying a gun, right yeah <clears throat> so okay, well, then let's see here, you know you talked about being the sole alice at your department for nine years and. You're seeing more and more police departments get analysts in Louisiana. We had a little bit of a discussion yesterday about regional associations and what you would want to see from a regional association in Louisiana. So I just wanted to get your get your take on that a little bit in terms of there's currently not a regional association there in in louisiana but what would you want one maybe to look like or maybe you would want to see about joining a neighboring association
1: well as we discussed i had to join the tax Lean association when i was at the most recent iaca conference which i did that to basically expand my network Um, Mm -hmm. so uh, that was one of the things that was recommended to me through the the that PSP thing I mentioned before. As part of that process, they do uh, assessments and and they came in and looked at the uh, analyst function. And that was one of the things that recommended to me was to reach out and make more connections with people. Mm-hmm. So that regional analysis group over there in Texas, I just added a whole group of people now to my to my network a little closer than just being part of the IACA. So, yeah. But uh, yeah, but from the regional standpoint, it would be great if we had something regionally in Louisiana because then we could get together on a regular basis and and talk about Louisiana problems and you know get training on things that are maybe more applicable to Louisiana. So,
2: yeah. but again,
1: I don't I, I don't know if we'll ever have enough people to really get to that regional analysis organization here just in the state of Louisiana. Now, the yeah. area that I live in, in Northwest Louisiana, is referred to as the Arklatex. And and that <laughs> was something I thought about was, well, maybe, maybe there should be a regional Arklatex association.
0: What is Arklatex? Uh,
1: well, basically, if, if you look up here in the Northwest corner of Louisiana, Arkansas I mean, from Shreveport, I can drive 10 miles, 15 miles roughly west, and I'm in Texas. I drive about 50 miles, I think it is, and it's about a 20, 30 minute drive up I 49, and I'm in Texas, uh, I'm in Arkansas. And then if I drive a little further and cut, West out of Texarkana, I can also be in Oklahoma, so Mm -hmm. that's kind of what they refer to as the Arklatex, that kind of corner region where all these states come together, but a lot of things happen across borders and boundaries here between the different states, so since it's so easy to just jump on one of the interstates and be somewhere else in an hour,
0: yeah so there's different reasons to have an association right if you're looking to network and looking for training looking looking to get together versus if you might want something more locally, but if you're looking for something bigger where you're holding like conferences and yours doing you're getting together maybe on an annual or biannual basis that's a different different type of association but you know so you could if you didn't want to get into the mix of creating all the, the legalese work that would be needed to create your own regional association you still could do something like join text and then talk to text and then still organize a group Locally, where you would meet more locally to discuss local problems, like what you were talking about with yeah. Oklahoma and arkansas and and whatnot, so yeah, it's might be just something that you you create that meeting more organically than as opposed to creating your own rack,
1: yeah, well, I know the 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 tax lien part is already paid off just from meeting with people that uh, and and having people to reach out to that you 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 trust or you know who they are so yeah
0: yeah let's talk a little bit about your education here because i do want to talk about some of the degrees that you got as mentioned you went to penn state and then got a postgraduate certificate on geospatial information systems and i was I, i i made a joke about nobody geocoding anymore and you said yep nope i still geocode." and so which i i didn't know anybody was really doing anymore
1: well maybe maybe i still haven't <laughs> caught up to the the modern world i don't know but and i don't always geocode but one yeah. one of the issues that we have with the the data that i get there there are coordinates that are generated by the records management system and they don't always drop the point exactly where you where the address is Mm-hmm. So I just found it better to geocode, you know. Mm-hmm. But and it, mm-hmm. with the more modern with Arc ArcGIS Pro, I don't know exactly what Esri did to their software, but it's it, it it's like it's on steroids because you can mm-hmm. geocode so much faster.
0: Now <laughs> so. well, that was time-consuming back in the day, so I'm sure they're trying to cut into that. Yeah. So and I'm I I always wondered. What more could be done with GIS in, in law enforcement? We put the the data up on a map, and, and that's certainly, it's always an important question to answer where something happened. But with all the theory and tools and techniques that go with GIS, I always wondered, is there something... Law enforcement analysis is missing when it comes to applying GIS to law enforcement analysis.
1: Yeah, I I sometimes think about that. I guess myself. I like I said, I try to read a lot about the the latest techniques and different theories and ideas that are out there. And sometimes I read stuff or I see presentations by people, and it it makes me wonder if they're applying the technique if the output is valid. And I don't know if that gives, if, if you understand what I'm saying there, but it's it's very easy to run a script for a hotspot or, mm-hmm. you know, to run some algorithm to show you where activity is happening. But at the end of the day, I have to take that output and explain it to officers who some may get, may Understand it very simply, and then others want you to explain. Well, what is it? What did what did it really do? And what are mm. you? You know, and I wish I was an expert some days, but you you have to at least get it to a point where they can accept your output. You know, your result is something valid to use in their mm. in their planning. In in our case. GIS is is used not is, is used primarily by the patrol people to to show where they need to have directed patrols uh, mm. a lot of times because crime uh, crime happens in certain places you know from all the different theories that a lot of times if if an area has a burglary the next. Uh, a couple of weeks down the road it might be burglarized again. So Mm
2: -hmm.
1: just by tracking the crimes, a lot of times it gives officers the anticipation to realize, hey, maybe I should be looking for burglars hanging out in this block in a couple of next week when I'm on patrol. So but uh, you know, so but I I guess one of the things that I question though sometimes is I is do I need to take just a set of crimes and run it against the, like a hotspot, for instance, you know, what am I looking for? And I, and I don't always have the right answer to that. And of yeah. course, the distance, when you try to do a hotspot calculations, what really makes the best sense for how far away I should look at the other incidents around it? So,
0: yeah, I, I do. I do think there's some danger for analysts when it comes to some of the software, and Esri is no different in there, that it's very easy to click a couple of buttons and get an output. And because the software is really good at what it does, analysts may or may not truly understand what the output is saying. And that's yeah. that can obviously and it can be difficult to truly understand like okay what did this software just do what are all the calculations that are going on behind the curtain and how am i going to now explain this output to decision makers
1: yeah yeah and that's i guess that's the struggle you when i was newer uh, and somebody came and said, "Well, can you tell us where there is concentrations of crime?" And I started looking in the books that I had and it said, "Well, run certain algorithms and do this." So and and that all sounded good at first, but then I was thinking, "Well, it, it gives me a location. How do I know that that's really valid?" You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and and that was one of the things I guess because I wasn't as confident in the output of some of these tools at first. I would always follow up with the officers. So, if I knew a special unit was assigned to go run an operation in an area, I spent, you know, five, ten minutes a few days later with one of the key people that planned it to say, well, I said that this was the area to go to. Did that turn out to be accurate? Did you find the behavior that I said was there? You know, so and I don't know, it could have just been a lack of confidence on my part, but at the same time I, I wanted to have confidence in the tool that I was that was telling me something. So that was
0: my solution. <laughs> No, oh, no, no. That's that. That works to corroborate what you were, what the data was telling you. So, all right, good. And then let's uh, Michigan State. You, you got the was it a certificate in law enforcement intelligence analysis?
1: It was actually a master of science degree, if you can oh, believe okay. that.
0: Yeah. What do you think you got out of that? Would you recommend it to others? Well, if the program
1: hasn't changed, because I I caveat it's been two years since I left it, I haven't significantly changed it, I think it's a a great program. You know, the first thing that was interesting to me is I had read a, a, a bunch of these different books and the the pop guides like I was mentioning and, and when you read them one of the things I would read is I would check to see well who the author was and who was involved in the project and and when I went to Michigan State uh, and looked at their program I was uh, pleasantly surprised that there were a whole lot of names in the faculty that were showing up in those Books and such I read. So I thought, well, if, if these are being published uh, used in the law enforcement community and the crime analysis community specifically, well, maybe this is a, a serious program I should be looking at. So, yeah. But w- once I got there and started getting into the work, you know, it was a mixture of a little bit of theory, but then a lot of a lot of kind of crime analysis focused stuff how to use certain softwares to an extent, discussions of different types of analysis, some of the same things that you would read in either Mr. Gottlieb's book. And there was, I think, I'm trying to remember the lady's name, She's she was at Central Florida for a while a professor. Her first name was Rachel. You probably know, is Santos? Does that sound
0: right? Oh, Rachel, Rachel Boba Santos. Rachel, Ra- oh, okay. Yeah. Dr. Santos. Yeah.
1: Okay. Dr. Santos. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so there was one of her books that was used in one of the courses yeah. and a couple of the courses kind of stepped through it, you know, so it was a really, to me, it was a good, you know, good program. And then I learned a good bit of stuff that it's not that I didn't know it, 'Cause I've read it in these other books, but it just kinda solidified what I knew, some of the things I knew already. And of course that increases your, your confidence when you're you know, you start to feel like, well, what I was doing makes this is what they're telling me I should be doing. So Gotcha. Hmm.
0: All right. Good deal. Let's finish up with personal interest then. And you are learning to play the mandolin. So.
1: Yeah, the the mandolin is a string instrument that it, it's got ties back to Europe, but it's uh, more commonly probably thought of here in the states with bluegrass music.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm not very good at it yet, but I'm learning how to uh, to play, and it's also an opportunity for me to spend time with my uh, youngest son because he he likes. Music and specifically, he likes playing the guitar. So, so it gives us a chance sometimes to sit down and just kind of play together.
0: Uh, uh, the different... things we do for our kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how, how long have you been working on the mandolin?
1: It it really hadn't been that long. It's mm-hmm. it it's less than a year. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about it for a long time, but I guess I started thinking, well, if I keep just thinking about it, I'll probably never do it. So. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just need to do it.
0: <laughs> now, is this the first instrument that you've ever learned how to play, or did you play? No, 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 no. When
1: I was when I was a kid, up through high school, I played the the cornet and the trumpet. Mm-hmm. So I I already knew music a little bit. I see. And and, and then I kind of dabbled a little bit with the piano. My mother was she was a music teacher and and gave piano lessons and. Which it's kind of funny, she didn't she never taught her kids how to play piano she She <laughs> taught everybody else how to play piano, even though we had a piano in the house oh, but right. so I just kind of learned tinkered with it and learned a little bit to yeah. play little simple songs, but
0: yeah, I got gotcha. you, huh, all right, well, I was trying to figure out like what voice you sound like, and what keeps coming to mind is the Chris Farley skit about Matt Foley the living in a van down by the river. Like <laughs> I don't know why. I it is not quite of it, but for whatever reason I just picture you ending the show saying I'm living in a van down by the river. So if you yeah. would if you would indulge me maybe to just to, to say that, I'll see if it, if that's what it is. Living living in a van down by the river. That's what you know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit about, that's what, that's what you sound like.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, see, in in Shreveport, we have uh, a homeless population, but those folks, some of those folks live down by the river, and a couple of them might live in a van, I'm not sure. sure, Yeah, oh, (laughs) man. (laughs)
2: <laughs> but, all uh, right,
0: all right, John. Well, last segment of the show is Words to the World, and this is where I give the guest the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Well,
1: I think for analysts, I would just say to keep on learning. Every day I spend a little bit of time trying to learn something new. Sometimes it might be music. Other times it's something about the job. And you, you know, with with that, you need to learn about your community, learn about the leadership you're working for, and of course, the latest tools and research. I try to spend at least an hour a week, maybe not all at one time, but throughout the week, spend an hour learning something new that you can apply to your job. And that hopefully will keep the job always interesting and improve your skills.
0: So very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. giving me just enough to talk bad about you later. (laughs) (laughs) But I do appreciate you being on the show, John. Thank you so much. And you be safe. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, Analysts. Keep talking.